Not really. Um, skip that chapter. Not that religious. So. Uh, that only men and women should be together. Yeah. Absolutely. It's good. It is good, but it's hard. It's difficult nowadays because it's on television. It's news. You know, it's okay to do whatever, but it'd be nice. <laughs> I heard stuff like that. Some people say like, "Oh, God's against like you know, gays or stuff." But then there's also like that big thing that God loves everybody. So it's like it's the Bible's very confusing. You know, it goes like I don't know, back and forth. I guess in a sense. Uh, so long as you're doing your wife. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, I, I went to a, you know, a private Christian university, and so um, I would probably just base it off of what those aspects were, you know, that abstinence and waiting until you were married were kind of the, the way of life and the way that things should have been approached. So that's basically what comes to mind. Uh, just like abstinence until marriage. And God created us to love, love one another, especially your wife. Well, uh, actually, I'm a Catholic, and I've been married to my wife 46 years. So, you know, life has been good to me because I've been good to her, and that's the way we keep it. Uh, it's gotten it's gotten such a bad notion as a way. It's gotten uh, it's gotten to the point where a lot of uh, a lot of people who are more in the limelight are against protected sex. They're, they're, they're more passing on celibacy and in today's society, celibacy is like not even an option for some people for some reason. So I think it's the, the Christianity in general needs to kind of find a new approach to it, educate kids on safe sex because a lot of these uh, rural areas that are really heavy in Christianity have the higher teen pregnancies because they're not taught the proper way of like contraception and all that kind of stuff. Adam and Eve. Yeah. Adam and Eve. Yeah. Just confusion? I don't know. There's too much. Because it's so weird how they say, like, adultery. But then they're all like, there's a lot of sex in the Bible, isn't there? It's like, you know, like Adam and Eve? That whole thing was confusing. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> and Mary? How she just had a baby? Like, come on. You know what I mean? <laughs> We apologize to blonde women everywhere <laughs> on behalf of that lovely young lady. <laughs> you know, she was really happy because she was having twins. She said, I got a two pack of the pregnancy test. They both came out positive. <laughs> okay, we're going to do, do stand-up comedy afterwards today. Um, yeah, every time I watch these videos, thanks to the guys that put those together. Also, by the way, I'm so blessed by our time of worship this morning. Can we just thank the worship team for... You guys are amazing. Super, super blessed um, to be able to worship with you guys all the time. Um, I, I want to take a second before we really dive into today's topic... Uh, because, again, we're mourning as a nation after another massive school shooting. 
I am getting tired of standing up here and leading us in prayer about this topic. Um, I don't care. I don't care what your thoughts are about gun control or whether or not who's to blame. All I know is this. A whole bunch of families had their lives torn apart this week. And uh, we need to care. And we need to pray. And I also think in terms of the fact that in addition to those, those many families and that whole community in Parkland, Florida that was torn apart this week, uh, there's a whole bunch of really good people who go on to school campuses every day to teach kids and love on them and, and set examples for them. And they didn't sign up to be security guards and they didn't sign up to be bodyguards. They signed up to be teachers and we just need to be praying, you guys. We really, really need to be praying. Everybody throws out their idea of what the solutions are. Maybe some of them are good. Maybe some of them are not. But I can tell you this. Greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. So we just need to be praying. So let's just bow our heads and take a minute to pray for those who are affected. Father, we, we just thank you that uh, you're good all the time. All the time you're good, God. All the time. In all circumstances, your goodness is not impacted, and, and, and because men choose to do evil does not make you bad, and so we confess that you are good. You get all the praise and all the worship and all the honor, even in the midst of a crisis like this, even in the midst of a tragedy, we turn to you, God, because there's nowhere else to turn, and, and we ask you, Father, to intervene. And we don't even know what that would look like. We don't even know what it means. But I just believe it means that the hearts of men are going to have to change. Father, people are going to have to come to know you. There's going to have to be a sweeping revival in our land in order for you to be, to be uh, active in the lives of more people so that some of this will stop, God. We just pray for those dear people whose, whose children and, and fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers were taken from them this week. And senseless, tragic act of violence. We pray for the police, the, the lawmakers, the people in authority, the teachers who are going onto campuses every day and having to figure out what their escape routes are and how to protect their kids in case of a disaster like this. Father, we pray that you would intervene. We pray that the violence would stop. We pray that you would have your way and that you would comfort those who have been affected by this. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by telling you a fable about a crocodile. There was a, a group of sociologists who decided that they were going to study the different people groups who live along the Nile River. They began in Uganda, Lake Victoria, where the Nile begins, and, and they followed the Nile northward all the way up to the Mediterranean, and along the way, they just dealt with the people who live along the river, people who make their livings along the river, people who fish for a living, people who farm using the fertile lands that are created by the Nile River, and, and they found all kinds of people there. They found uh, bustling metropolises or modern cities. They found tribal people who had been untouched by Western culture in any kind of way. And they found everybody in between living along the river. But they eventually came to a very remote place uh, where nobody from the outside had really ever been. And they came to a tribe of people who had lived along that river uh, always, as long as any of their ancestors could remember. And uh, 
they were standing and talking with some of the tribal leaders and trying to make an acquaintance and, and using signs and all that kind of stuff to figure out how they could communicate. When suddenly one of them saw a crocodile come up right out of the Nile and it was a huge crocodile and there were children playing right along near there and immediately he, he gasped and pointed and he said, it's crocodile, it's crocodile. And the guy grabbed his hand and covered his mouth and said, we don't talk about crocodiles. Meanwhile, a child was grabbed and dragged down into the river. There was a sound of a mother wailing and the people ran to see what they could do, but it was too late. That's when they noticed that all along the river in this village, there are children playing, many of them with one leg, many of them with one arm, all of them bearing scars, older people bearing scars. There, there's just signs of uh, crocodile attacks everywhere, and they tried to ask about it, and always they were hushed and told, we don't talk about the crocodiles. The crocodiles are maiming the whole community and have been for generation after generation after generation, but there's so much pain and so much awkwardness and so much discomfort related to the topic because everybody had been hurt. Everybody knew somebody who had been hurt. Everybody had had their lives torn apart and they had just had it. They just couldn't talk about it anymore. And so nothing was done and the crocodiles just feasted on the people and that's the way it had always been because nobody was willing to talk about it. You get my point? There's a, there's a problem in our society that none of us is talking about very well. In fact, for the most part, those who are talking about it openly and clearly and loudly are saying all the wrong things about it. And those who have the right things to say are embarrassed and awkward and uncomfortable, and so we're not saying anything about it. And, and people's lives are getting mauled and broken and crushed and in many ways destroyed because of it, and yet nobody is dealing with it and nobody's talking about it and nobody's figuring out what to do about it. And as I've been saying for the last few weeks, I just decided enough is enough and the body of Christ has to talk about these things. And so uh, here we are. Today's going to be awkward. It is going to be uncomfortable. Probably more awkward and uncomfortable than any of, the, any of the messages we've had so far in this series. But I want to be really clear. I'm not talking about this for shock value. I'm not talking about these topics because uh, I'm trying to get more people to come to church. I'm not talking about these topics because I want more clicks on the podcast. I'm not talking about these topics for any of those reasons. I'm talking about these topics because I care. I'm talking about these topics because for so long I have been ministering to people and counseling people and trying to help people who have scars all over them because nobody has helped them in this area. And I am just sick to death of watching what's happening while we sit silently and don't talk about it. So I'm sorry it's awkward. I know it's awkward. I know it's uncomfortable. Like I said last week, if you're visiting with us for the first time, just cut me some slack. Uh, this is not our normal discussion. But you know what? I am going to teach every bit of the Word of God because it's all good for us. We need to know what the Word says. And the Word says so much on the subject of sex. There's no way I'm going to come close to covering 
all the topics that the scripture brings up or all the topics that may be on your heart or maybe on your mind. Uh, we, we've set up a thing on the website where you can go and ask anonymous questions. If you're interested in, in doing that, please do. But also understand, so I'm getting amazing questions, but some of the questions that I'm getting are very specific about a specific uh, situation, a specific sexual challenge, a specific set of historical data and all of that kind of stuff and what is the answer. And those specific answers are not going to find their way into these sermons. Uh, If you need help on something very specific in your life right now, call me. Let's sit down. Let's do some counseling. Counseling is not a dirty word. You're going to hear that multiple times today. So um, we're going to broach these subjects. And Uh, This week we're talking about sex again. We'll be discussing it again next Sunday. As I said, it's going to be a bit awkward. It's a bit clunky, frankly. Uh, Very, very difficult for me to put these sermons together because there's so many topics I need to weave into sermons. These sermons feel a little bit more like lectures than sermons to me, and they're a little bit clunky in their transitions, but I'm going to ask you to just bear with me because we got to cover this stuff. And we're going to try today to get a very biblical view of of really the, the good side of the sex discussion. We're, we're going we're gonna to talk about how God has given us direction about how to get our sexuality right. And we're going to see what he has to say about that. Because most of what does get said in church on this subject is about the people that we perceive to be getting it wrong. And there's a lot of don't do this and don't do that and rules and regulations and all that kind of stuff. And that's what most of us have heard. But very little have we heard about what the scripture says about what happens when we get it right and how to get it right. So we're going to talk about that today. And then next week, we're going to get into the darker side of things. And we're going to talk about what happens when we go off the rails. What happens when things go wrong? What happens when we get outside of God's design for sex? And how do we meet God even there? Does God just give up on us when we have sexual sin in our lives? Does he just give up on us when we get confused about gender issues and sexuality issues and all that kind of stuff? Does God just say, no, if you don't toe the line, I have nothing to do with you? Or is God still there for us? And is he still reaching out to us? And does he still want to bring us to a life of wholeness? And if so, what does that look like? We're going to see that next week. As I said last week, the Bible definitely does not shy away from the subject of sex. Uh, The Old Testament is filled with discussions of sex. Uh, The New Testament is filled with discussions of sex. Jesus himself had a lot to say about sex. The apostles wrote a lot about sex. The Bible covers the subject of sexual morality quite thoroughly. Uh, It contains warnings about the misuse of sex. It talks about things like adultery, which is anybody that is married involved in some sort of sex outside of marriage. It talks about fornication. The the word fornication is all throughout the Bible. If, If your Bible translation doesn't use the word fornication, it usually uses the word immorality or more often sexual immorality. It's all the same Greek word and the word is porneia. And the word porneia is the word from which we get our word pornography and it means anything that is illicit sexually. So anything that is outside of God's design sexually is fornication. That's a rather broad topic. 
The Bible talks about lust. Jesus looked at this issue and said, hey, look, I know you've seen the rules, but nobody's doing very well at following the rules. I think the problem is in the heart. We got to get people's hearts changed. And if we can get our hearts changed, then our behavior will follow. And it's an issue of the heart. The Bible talks about very specific, tragic things like incest and, and rape and bestiality and sexual abuse and all of that kind of stuff is covered in the pages of Scripture. It tells stories about people who messed up sexually and what happened in their lives as a result. And it talks about people who bore the scars of sexual abuse and what happened in their lives as a result. There are commandments related to sex throughout the scripture, including in the Ten Commandments. And there is sage advice and poetry about sex and about the traps that we need to be careful of falling into. And so it's true that the Bible gets into all this. And part of that means, yes, the Bible does condemn sexual sin of every kind. And there's so much controversy and discussion these days about this. There are a lot of people who, who are interested in drawing nearer to Jesus, but are frankly turned off by the church and afraid to go to church because they're convinced that, that their particular sexual interest or their particular, particular sexual story doesn't fit with what the Bible says, and therefore they're going to be judged. And they're afraid that the Bible says this or that. It was so interesting to watch these men in the street interviews and have people say, well, I don't know doesn't the Bible say something about? I think the Bible says, doesn't it? I think it says, doesn't it? And nobody knows what the Bible says. And, and people, because of their fear, they're sometimes afraid of what the Bible might say and what that might mean for their lives. Sometimes they're just afraid of so-called Christians and how so-called Christians are going to look down upon them or treat them if uh, they're really honest and open about who they are and what they're dealing with and what their challenges are. But the Bible does condemn many different types of sexual activity. Yes, the Bible does condemn homosexual behavior. And that's a big buzzword that everybody is kind of up in arms about today. But listen, I want to be very clear about this because we don't have time to teach through all this kind of stuff. But these are things that are on the hearts and minds of our society. Um, The Bible does condemn homosexual behavior. And the Bible condemns all kinds of heterosexual behavior that take place outside of the design of God's plan, right? But, but the challenge is that the vast majority of people are heterosexual. Therefore, the vast majority of people have heterosexual uh, temptations, and they find those normal, and therefore homosexual temptations abnormal. And, and so we look down upon those who have the abnormal, fit in the abnormal group or in the minority, and they feel it. And because they feel it, they keep a distance. And, and the God that is trying to say, hey, wait a second, I can help you sort this out. I can help you work through this. They keep their distance from God because they're concerned about all of that. So listen, let's be clear. We don't have time, nor is it my point in this series, to go down a list of all of the sexual activities and behaviors and all of that kind of stuff that God is upset about and that the Bible says no to. That's not my point. My point is this. That God is a good God. He created us. 
He designed us and he has given us sex as a gift to be carried out and enjoyed within his design. And I don't care whether you're outside of his design in a heterosexual way or outside of his design in a homosexual way, you are missing out on God's best when you choose to do it your own way instead of choosing to do it God's way. So it's not a question of yay for heterosexual and boo for homosexual. It's a, it's a question of doesn't God have a plan for our lives that is better than some of us have imagined and accepted. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. It comes as a surprise to no one. You've all heard this stuff before. People inside and outside the church all have a sense that the Bible says some things about sex and it's mostly things we shouldn't do. And next week, as I said, we're going to discuss that darker side of things and what happens when we Uh, get into that. But before we get into all that, I want to talk more about the bright side. I want to talk more about the part that nobody really talks about in church, because there's too many, or at least more than enough, fiery sermons where people are beating pulpits and talking about all the bad stuff that people are doing sexually, but people are shrugging their shoulders and going, yeah, well, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to land on this? What am I supposed to believe? What am I supposed to think? What is this supposed to look like in our lives. Does the Bible say anything about that? I have great news. The Bible says a lot about that. So we're going to look at that this morning. Because here's the deal. God has a plan for your sex life. And it's outstanding. And we want to know what it is. So I'm just going to show you a couple examples from Scripture. The first comes from the book of Proverbs. So go ahead and open to the book of Proverbs. It's in your Old Testament. It's, it's after the book of Psalms, kind of in the middle of your Bible. And go to the book of Proverbs chapter 5. And while you're turning to Proverbs 5, let me just tell you a little bit about it. Proverbs, for the most part, there are a couple of uh, exceptions to this in Proverbs, but most of Proverbs was written by a guy named Solomon. You may have heard of him. He's known as the wisest man who ever lived. God gave him an incredible amount of wisdom. Of course, the problem with Solomon was not that he didn't have enough wisdom. It's that he didn't have a strong character. So Solomon knew the right thing to do and chose not to do it too often. Does anybody relate to that? Right? So he knew the right thing to do. He had great wisdom, but he often chose to do the wrong thing. And one of the areas in which he chose to do the wrong thing again and again and again and again and again uh, to the tune of 700 wives and, and more hundreds of concubines and harems and all of that was his sex life. So Solomon in his old age sits down and he writes the books of wisdom. He writes the book of Proverbs or most of it. He writes the book of Ecclesiastes. He he writes a book called the Song of Solomon. And he says, listen, I'm going to do this in a poetic way and I'm going to present this wisdom to you. But Proverbs particularly, he presents to his son. As his son is coming of age and he's saying to his son, listen, I want to give you counsel so that you can live successfully. Okay, so he's writing to his son. We get to Proverbs chapter five and he gets into the issues of sex and he starts saying to his son, listen, I can tell you from experience, my son, that being in the royal family means there's going to be women throwing themselves at you. There's going to be all kinds of sexual opportunity for you. There's going to be all kinds of temptation out there for you. And I want you to understand God's design for you and how God wants to bless you. So let me tell you a little bit about that. And in in chapter 5, verses 1 through, say, 14 or 15, something like that, he basically says, listen, stay away from all that stuff. 
Stay away from uh, the, all the sexual opportunities you're going to get. God has designed sex to exist between you and your wife in marriage, so stay away from all that stuff. And then he gets into, around verse 15, it starts to take off where he starts talking about what God has designed, and that's the part I want to get to. So we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Now, before I read, let me tell you a couple things. This is poetry, okay? So go back to high school or college. I was, a, I was an English major in college. We had to sit and read ridiculous poems and pretend like we understood what they meant. We had to tell our teachers, oh, it means this, it means that. And our teachers would just shake their head. We said, this must be the symbolism. This must be the imagery. And we learned to try to, uh, you know, interpret poetry. Um, and then I went to seminary where we had to interpret Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry is dramatically different than English poetry. And so if you thought I was lost in college, you should have seen me in seminary. It was crazy, right? So, so let me just tell you, it's poetry. The language is poetic. It's all about imagery and symbolism, okay? I think you're going to be able to read what we're about to read and know what it's talking about. And I'm going to try to be respectful of that. Listen, verse 18, he's writing to his son, okay? His son, who is coming of age, who happens to be male, his male son he's writing to, okay? I don't, I don't want to do an anatomy class. I just want to tell you his son is a male, okay? Verse 18, to my male son, I say, let your fountain be blessed. It's okay to laugh. It's okay. Now some of you are like, I can't laugh. He'll think I think it means, yeah, that's what it means. I don't think he had a fountain in the backyard, guys. <laughs> Let your fountain be blessed, he says. And then he says, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, which is fascinating, a fascinating picture that Solomon, the old man who never seemed content with one wife and always went for another and always went for another and always went for another and always went for another. Now he says, listen, you're going to marry a woman when you're young. Be content with her. Rejoice with her. Sexually be exhilarated with her. Be satisfied with her and let her be satisfied with you. The wife of your youth is the wife that God gives you. Don't go looking somewhere else. Guys, what he's trying to say here in part when he says, let your fountain be blessed by the wife of your youth is I don't care how old you get. That's the woman God gave you. Be blessed sexually in your sex life with your husband or with your wife. That's what he's saying. Shall we go on? <clears throat> verse 19. Just in case you're going, I think he's reading into this. I don't think this is about sex. Look at verse 19. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. That word exhilarated might say in your translation, intoxicated. It means overwhelmed, okay? It's talking about her breasts, okay? This is not confusing. <laughs> this is pretty obvious what we're talking about. And then he says, verse 20, why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all, the, all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. So he's trying to paint a picture of contrast, right? He's saying it could be fabulous. It could be exhilarating. 
It could be awesome from your youth to your old age. That's what God has in mind. Or you could go after the adulteress. You could let your mind and your, and your eyes and your heart and your body wander where they should not wander. And if you do, let me just tell you, he says, you will trip over the cords of your own sin. It will tie you up. It will destroy you. It will cause you to fall down. It will break you and it will break those you love. So I'm telling you, he says, be careful. You have a choice. You can either have a fabulous sex life for all of your life in the context of the marriage that God gives you, or you could keep looking for some new thing, some new way, and you will never be satisfied. That's what he's saying, okay? Now, this same Solomon, did you know that he wrote an entire book of the Bible completely devoted to sex? It's called the Song of Solomon, or or might be in your Bible, the Song of Songs. Okay, so turn to the right. If you're in Proverbs, you're going to pass Ecclesiastes, and then you're going to find the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. And if you get to Isaiah, you went too far. Let me tell you a little bit about the Song of Solomon. Again, the entire book is a poem. It's a sex poem from beginning to end. It's all about their courtship and then their marriage and then their honeymoon and then their sex life moving on from there. That's what it's about. I know that there are certain conservative Bible folks out there who are saying, oh no, it's not about sex at all. It's simply symbolic about how God loves his people and we're his bride. To which I say in my theologically educated mind, It's about sex, guys. That's what it's about. It's about marital sex, okay? Now, beginning in chapter one and all the way through chapter three, it's basically dealing with their courtship. The first time they set eyes on each other, they fall for each other, they can't believe how wonderful each other are. It's that whole heart going pitter-patter, can't wait to see if he texted me thing, right? That's, That's all that at the beginning, right? And then... It gets to their marriage. The end of chapter three, Solomon comes in in his limousine, which is a couch carried by 60 warriors. And he comes to the wedding and he finds his wife at the wedding altar and they have their vows and they get married and there's a big wedding party. And then chapter four is the wedding night. So I thought, what chapter should I read to them from? And I figured I'd go with chapter four. Okay, so I'm going to read to you chapter four. Now listen, uh, you can do it either way. You can hold me accountable if you want by watching, but I would suggest don't even read it from your Bible. Just listen. Just listen. It's a poem. Okay, just listen. Chapter four, Song of Solomon, verse one, it's the wedding night. He's waiting. She's been in the bathroom for an hour. Okay, she comes out and presents herself to him. And he checks her out from the top to the floor and describes it for us. So you guys ready for this? Are you ready? Okay. Chapter four, verse one. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. (laughs) Your hair... It's old poetry. Apparently, poetry has changed. Your hair is like a flock of goats. 
that have descended from Mount Gilead. Now, now understand, this is a shepherd poem. And so he's talking about what they would know in that land. There's the mountain, and when the shepherd brings his sheep down, they come around the path, and they're beautiful and white, and you stand, and you can look and see this flock of sheep falling like her hair falls on her shoulders. And he's describing this. Your teeth, verse 2, are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Again, we may not find it particularly exciting to have your teeth compared to sheep, right? (laughs) But they've been newly shorn, and all the dirty wool is gone, and they've been washed, and they are so white you have to put on sunglasses to look at them. And they are coming down, and he compares her teeth to that. He's saying, your teeth are beautiful. They're white, and not one of them is missing. And that culture, big deal, right? <laughs> it's like Arkansas, right? If your teeth, you got all her teeth? Sorry, if you're from Arkansas, sorry. <laughs> She's got all her teeth. He's impressed with her dental hygiene, you guys, which is great, because they, nothing will mess up a sexual encounter like stanky breath, right? So we got that. Now, verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones on which, a, on which are hung a thousand shields, the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts, see he's going from the top down. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of the lions to the mountains of the leopards. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes. Translation of the modern vernacular, I am seriously turned on right now. That's what he's saying. With a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. And the fragrance of your oils and all kinds of spices. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of Lebanon. He's beginning to kiss her now. And he's talking about her lips and how they taste. And there's honey under her tongue. How does he know there's honey under her tongue? We thought this was invented in France. Apparently, it was not. (laughs) A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. Uh, this is, this is um, imagery of her virginity. It's, uh, It's saying that she is a garden, but her garden has up till now been locked. 
And he, he says, your garden locked, my bride. And then he goes on and he, he says, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates, verse 13, with choice fruits, henna and nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with the finest spices. He's talking about how she smells and her perfumes and, and her body oils. And he's saying, it's just fabulous. It's like the greatest of all the perfumes we can make. And then verse 15, you are a garden spring, a well of fresh water and streams flowing, flowing from Lebanon. And then she speaks in verse 16, awake, O north wind and come wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat of its choice fruits. I know you're all going to read the rest of the book when you get home, so I'm going to leave it right there. Okay? Guys, I'm trying, to be, I'm trying to be appropriate here, but you get it? Do you get it? It's beautiful. Oh my gosh, it's exciting. It's exhilarating. It's everything God created it to be, and they're celebrating it. In chapter 5, um, she, she talks about him in the same kinds of ways, but I found four more interesting, so I read you that one. In, in chapter 6, they rejoice in each other. In chapter 7, he describes her again, only this time he starts at the feet and goes to the head, and he reverses the whole thing and puts it in new poetic language. It's fabulous. It's beautiful. It's a honeymoon. It's what God created it to be. And as we said last week, I want you to see God is pro-sex. He invented it. He designed it. And he gave it to us as a gift, as an avenue to oneness and intimacy between a husband and a wife. My friends, sex within marriage is meant to be fantastic. And if you're married and your sex life is stumbling and struggling and all of that kind of stuff, I, it's so, it so breaks my heart that, that when God is try to give us such a gift, there are certain things husbands and wives just don't even talk to each other about most of the time, and this is one of them. So, so we just let it be. We just let it be, and it is what it is, and we don't talk about it, and let alone talk to a counselor about it, and so we just accept something far less than what God gave us. And we think that's no big deal because it's just married life, and then we sit and look at young people who are having a hard time accepting what God gave them sexually, and we judge them, and we say, you guys are messing up. Oh my gosh. Married people aren't having any sex. Single people are having all the sex. And God's shrugging his shoulders and going, how did they get this so messed up? And here's what I want to say to you married people. Counseling, not a dirty word. But most of you don't need me to tell you that our enemy loves to take what God has created and given us as a gift. And he loves to twist it and break it and ruin it and give it back to us as a curse. And it brings brokenness and devastation God gave us sex to strengthen our marriages and create oneness. Satan tries to use sex as a way to destroy our marriages and tear families apart. God created us male and female and intends us to complete one another in our maleness and our femaleness. Satan tries to confuse us about gender and sexual roles to the point where we have no chance to experience what he's given us as a gift. And instead, we experience something less because in the moment that feels better to us, that's what makes more sense to us. And Satan is messing with us. 
God created us for romantic sexual relationships in a loving, committed, devoted relationship for life. Satan offers us a tempting shortcut of casual sex that doesn't mean anything and you can just go and have your fun. God uses the illustration of marriage as an illustration of his relationship between him and his people. And yet, Satan uses it to take our eyes off of God. Make us think we can find fulfillment somewhere else. We live in a culture that has been heavily influenced with satanic thoughts. And we're confused. Sexual expression outside of marriage never fulfills. And as I said earlier, I don't care what kind of sexual expression we're talking about here. If we're outside of what God designed it for, we are going to be sorely, sorely disappointed. And it will never serve the purpose of fulfillment that God says it will. But we keep longing for it and we keep lusting after it. And, and we keep thinking that, I know that last time it left me brokenhearted and ruined and all that, but this time it will be different and it isn't. And I've walked alongside countless people who are just struggling in one way or another in this area of their lives. And I always go, oh, God meant this as a blessing. What happened? And I get mad. Mad because God so obviously went to great lengths to make sex a huge blessing to us. And mad because we've accepted a counterfeit idea of sex that somehow always ends up breaking our hearts. And I'm sick of watching people who God loves take the bait and then get hooked and then get controlled, and then get crushed. Like a heroin addict who puts a needle in his arm knowing this is just ruining me, but I can't stop. It's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. But you know what? We serve an even bigger God, amen? And, and so I, I, I just want to talk to you for a second if you're single. Um, if you're a single person Dealing with sexual temptation, I want you to know that you are not alone. For one, as your pastor, I'm praying for you if nobody else is. And um, it's a challenge that you're facing that is greater than any generation before you in American culture has ever faced. And and I'm going to give you a little sense of why. First of all, how about some of these statistics? In 1860... The average age of the onset of puberty for girls was 16 years, 6 months. In 1920, it was 14.6. In 1950, the average age was 13.1. In 1980, the average age was 12.5. In 2010, it had dropped all the way to 10.5. And I just saw an article yesterday that said that uh, there's a new study that shows that the average onset of puberty for girls is between 8.5 and 9.5 in 2017. Now, there's all kinds of talk about why. There's all kinds of talk about hormones and the food and diet things and all that. Nobody knows for sure why, but we do know for sure that the average age of puberty has been dropping and it's dropping for boys too, but for boys, they're about a year behind girls because boys are always slower at everything, right? (laughs) So they're about a year behind girls. And meanwhile, the average age of marriage in our culture is increasing, right? So people are becoming sexually mature around 10, 11, 12 years old, 
And the average age, first of all, did you know the, the statistics studies show us that um, the prediction today is that among millennials, 25% will never marry. Okay, that's the highest percentage in any uh, generation in history. 25% will never marry. Of those who will marry, the average age of marriage today, or as of 2015, the average age of marriage in America is 29 for men and 27 for women. Okay? When my parents got married in the 1940s, my mom was 17, my dad was 18, and everybody that got married was their age. And now... So, so in the 40s, you were hitting puberty around 13 and a half, 14, and getting married around 17, right? And meanwhile, you're living with mom and dad under a whole bunch of rules and controls and all of that. Today, you're hitting puberty around 10 or 11, and you're getting married around 30. And you're supposed to live roughly 20 years as a sexually developed person without any sexual outlet whatsoever. Oh, and by the way, pornography is everywhere, Oh, and by the way, uh, the acceptance of sexual sin on our society is almost a given. So there's not any, any more shame to it. There's not any more restraint to it. In fact, today, given uh, technology, um, you, you have online porn, which is available 24 hours a day in private, and nobody's going to ever know about it unless uh, somebody finds out, which everybody eventually does. Or there's hookup apps on your phone. I know that if you're in your 20s, you know about this, but if you're 50, you probably don't know about this. There's apps on the phone. Here I am in Duarte. I tap in. It shows me people within a five-mile radius who might be interested in hooking up for sex right now. This is not prostitution. You don't pay for it. There's guys on there and there's girls on there. You pick one. If I like her and she says yes and she likes me, all we have to do now is find the place, meet up. We have a casual encounter and go our separate ways. No strings attached, no feelings, no commitments, no anything. That's what our singles are dealing with today. So... So let me just tell you this. If you're old fart like me, will you please pray for young singles? But it is so easy for us to sit back and go, oh my gosh, they're so promiscuous. Oh my gosh, they're so this and so that. You know what? They are swimming in a cesspool of ungodly temptation and we're not even teaching them or talking to them or helping them in any ways. Teenagers, 20-year-olds, 25-year-olds, guys, it is tough to be single today. It is tough to be single and sexually pure. It's also tough to maintain a God-honoring sex life if you're married. And we're out of time, so I got to rush through this. But let me just say that, that uh, as I said before, just because you're married doesn't mean you have the sex life that God intends for you to have. Now listen, I'm not saying everybody has to have honeymoon sex for the next 50 years, but I am saying this, if, if your sex life is a, is a point of pain and brokenness and division in your family, instead of something that is bringing oneness and intimacy and all of that to your family, then you need to deal with it because you are missing out on what God has for you. And you're settling for something so much less than God's best. Guys, listen. It is a huge challenge. But I have good news. God created sex as a magnificent gift and gave it to his children. Yes, there's temptation. Yes, there's challenge. Yes, there's all of that. And yes, there's a lot at stake. But God has not told us to go figure it out on our own. He has given us his word. He has given us his Holy Spirit. 
And as I said earlier, greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. It is time that we put our trust in God, even in the area of our sexuality. If you're a Christian, I want you to be encouraged. It is within your power, according to the scripture, within your power to live a sexually satisfying and sexually pure life. The two are not mutually exclusive. The two are required to go together. You cannot live a sexually satisfying life that is not sexually pure. And you cannot live a sexually pure life that is not sexually satisfying. I guarantee you it's true. God has a plan for you and he has a way for you. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, I don't care how tempted you are and what your temptation is, there is a way of escape and there is a God who gives you that way of escape. And he has a plan for you that is so much better than what you are tempted to settle for. So take heart, church. This is not a lost cause. God's doing great things. And God, by his grace and in his power, will allow us to experience the amazing sex life that he created for us and gave to us. You may be young and single. You may be middle-aged and married. You may be old and married. You may be widowed. You could be at any place in your life, but I'm telling you, you're still a sexual being and there is a way for you to live out your sexuality that is appropriate and God-honoring and satisfying to you. That's what God has in mind. Next week, we're going to get into the question of what happens when we do get off track. What does God say about all of the sexual sin in our culture today? Does he care? Is he mad? Is he compassionate? Does he want to help? Is he reaching out to us? Or does he want us to just stand in judgment of people who are messing up in ways that we're not messing up? You have to come back next week to find out. (laughs) For now, let's stand and pray together.